but again, my name is Caleb Barros, and I uh, get the privilege of starting a new church with Paul up in Lyons, Kansas, and actually with a lot of you in here too. I see a lot of familiar faces. God has been building a new little family called King's Cross Church, and it has been an absolute privilege to lead it. So thanks for letting me join you all here this morning as well. But I want to dive right in and uh, begin with, I think, possibly one of the best movies I've seen this past year, which is called Just Mercy. And this is a true story about a lawyer named Brian Stevenson, and he was a recent graduate from Harvard Law, and this is like back in the 19, I think, 90s, sometime back in there, but he graduates from Harvard Law, and instead of taking a really prestigious, high-paying job somewhere on Wall Street, he instead moves down to Alabama to work and fight for poor people who cannot afford legal representation. And where Brian Stevenson starts is he actually begins to meet with inmates on death row. And he begins to talk with them and hear their stories. And one of the guys he meets is named Walter McMillan, nicknamed Johnny D, Johnny D. And as he begins to hear Walter's story, he learns that he's this African-American man who's been convicted of murdering a white woman. And he, he learns that he was convicted based on the testimony of one man named Ralph Myers. And what he finds is that Ralph Myers gave his testimony in order to get a lesser penalty on his own felony charge. So there's motivation for Ralph to be lying. And when he meets with Ralph personally, he finds that he's actually made up his story about Walter Johnny D. McMillan. And so he begins to fight for this retrial, and he's getting all of this resistance from the Alabama State Police. He's getting resistance from the criminal justice system, but as a good advocate does, he keeps pressing through, and he gets this court appearing where he has Ralph Myers on the stand testifying again that he made up his testimony about Walter Johnny D. McMillan, that he lied, that he made up that story, that he was manipulated into it. But even as the court hears this, the sole witness taking back what he said, they still don't dismiss the case against Johnny D., they still keep him on death row. So Brian Stevenson does not give up, but he even goes to the house of the prosecuting attorney, shows up on his front porch, knocks on his door, and begins to plead with him. Like, how do you not see the injustice of this case? That this man has been thrown in prison again, although many witnesses testify he was somewhere else, and the one person that says he did commit the crime now says he's lying. How do you not see how unjust this is? And rather than agreeing with him, the prosecuting attorney kicks him off of his lawn and tells him to go away. So time after time after time, Brian Stevenson has to press through in appealing and appealing and advocating for these people who cannot afford legal representation. And this is exactly what a good advocate does. They do not give up. They keep persevering. And this is why we need 
more people like Brian Stevenson in our world, right? <laughs> I know this is a beautiful story that he has, but sadly, it's all too rare in our world. We need more people like him who are going to say, I'm going to step into the nitty-gritty places of our world, the people forgotten, the people on death row, the people that can't afford help, and I'm going to enter in and be an advocate for them. We need more Brian Stevenses. Stevenson. So hear me. I know you're studying right now at school. If your heart longs for these things, we need people to enter into it. But I also tell you this story because it calls to mind for me how scripture speaks of an advocate that we have, how scripture speaks of someone who's appealing on our behalf. And I want to show you this from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. If you have a Bible, awesome, open up with me. But I'll have this on the slides for us as well. See the advocate that Scripture speaks of here. It says again, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. I know guys running the slides, I've got a lot more verses than that, but I'm going to stop right there, just verse 25. He always lives to intercede for them. And this word intercede, it's not one we really use a whole lot in our day-to-day -day culture. It's not a really common word, but it just simply means that go-between person. Someone who's a mediator between two parties when there's a disagreement or a fight, someone begins to appeal for someone else, the go-between. That is to intercede. And Brian Stevenson is, again, a beautiful example of this. Someone who is appealing and interceding for the innocent and the marginalized. But what's so strange about Jesus and what's terrifyingly good about him is that Jesus is appealing for and interceding for not the innocent, but for the guilty. Jesus is interceding for those who are rightly full of shame, not those who are innocent. And no matter what people have done, no matter the guilt, no matter the shame, there's nothing that Jesus is not able to intercede for. There's nothing that he is not able to cover. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what kind of shame that you might have that's lurking in your heart and accusing you, the beauty is that Jesus has precisely come, not for the innocent, but for people like us who are haunted by our shame. This is the strange, terrifying beauty of Jesus and his intercession for us. Man. I know if we're really going to be startled by the beauty of Jesus and what he's done, we genuinely have to see our need of it our need of it. We need to see that we need intercession like what Jesus is providing. So, so see again with me this passage in Hebrews 7. A couple verses later in verse 27, it says, unlike the other high priests or intercessors, if you will, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of other people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all 
when he offered himself. So Hebrews is clearly pointing out that the reason we need intercession is frankly because of our sin. Jesus is offering himself because of sins. That there's wrong things that we have done that have created a gap between us and God. There's a distance and a separation now that we need bridged. And this is something that we cannot do. So we need that mediator. We need that go-between. We need that intercessor. And this is where Jesus enters in because of our sin. But if I'm just going to be straight up, talking about sin is not exactly like a great thing today. You with me? I think for a lot of people, they hear sin, it's like, man, that's just like a passe, dead idea. Like, when do Christians like me, preachers, like, get tired of trying to make people feel bad about themselves? You get what I'm saying? Like, all the time, we're talking about sin, sin, sin. So what is this with preachers all the time trying to make us feel bad about ourselves? And I resonate with this to some degree. But I also love how a pastor in Melbourne, Australia, named Mark Sayers, he points out, and I, I shared this last semester, if you remember, got to preach about Mulan, the same idea. But he points out how we are told a different story today about who we are. And Mark Sayers says that, first of all, we are told that innately, deep down in us, we are good. Like our true deep self is good. But secondly, we have lost touch with this true good self because of external pressures, because of maybe people like me telling you that there's sin in your life. So we feel this pressure on us, so we've lost touch with that true good self. So what we need is to rediscover who we are. We need to go on a journey of self-discovery to get back in touch with our lost inner child. And if we do that, we will feel that life and joy and meaning again. This is not the story of scripture. This is the story of our secular culture and what you are being preached day in and day out through the music you listen to and through the movies you watch. This is the story we're being told, that we are innately good but there's a challenge to this story. And one of the flaws in this is that, first of all, it leads us to be complacent. It leads us to be complacent. And I say that because if you deeply believe that you are good, right, down deep inside, innately, your inner being is good foundationally, then when wrong things are happening in your life, it's gonna lead you to blame that on outside things. The external world, the people around you, the circumstances, it's not you because you're good, so what's going wrong happens because of the things around you. Leads us into making excuses. So rather than taking responsibility for what goes wrong in our lives, we instead sideline that away, and it locks us into immaturity. It leads us into being irresponsible. It leads us to be stagnant, actually. There's a powerful book review in the New York Times that shows this. There's a book on character that was written last year, and this New York Times book review is commenting on some of the sections of this book. And it says that certain people were caught on video doing things that were, like, awful. And when people were confronted with this video evidence, what they said was, that's not who I am. And so this article is commenting, saying this. Let me read it for you. It says, 
this is not who I am. A student at American University pleaded after a video circulated of her using a racial slur. That's not the real me, the YouTuber Shane Dawson said after acknowledging his long history of wearing blackface in videos. That's not who I am, the Patriots kicker Justin Rohrwasser, might have totally butchered that name, but swore after his tattoo of the logo of a right-wing militia sparked outrage. It's not me, not the real me, not the true me. Others afflicted by this sudden spate of bodily possession, the UFC fighter Conor McGregor filmed last year punching a man in the head at a pub. A Missouri woman captured in a video last month, draped in a Confederate flag, shouting KKK and telling someone, I will teach my grandkids to hate you. So all of these people were caught on video and confronted with their wrongdoing. And every single one of them, instead of taking responsibility, said, that's not the real me. Because we've been deeply convinced that the real us is good. That could not be me. So we have begun to irrationally distance ourselves from our wrong behavior. And the hard truth is that we are allergic to our sin and our wrongdoing as a culture. We are so allergic to being confronted by that about what it might mean for us that we just irrationally separate it off of ourselves and distance it as much as possible. That's not me. That's not the, really who I am. But can we have the maturity to actually say, that's not someone else? Where is that coming from? That word, that idea, that action, that came as hard as it is from me. I am responsible for that. This is the beauty and the bluntness. I love Jesus' teaching, man. It just cuts you to the heart. This is the beauty and the bluntness of what Jesus teaches. Where he says in Matthew 15, man, hear this. He says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and the list goes on. Jesus is a profoundly loving teacher, but he knows that if he's going to be loving, he's got to be honest with us about the real condition of our hearts and who we are. And he's not trying to cover things over. He's saying, look, the things that come out of you, they're not from the external world. They're coming from your own heart. That's the real issue. So in love, please hear me say that is what Jesus is teaching us. Your heart is the place of corruption. Deep down, you are not innately good. Deep down, we are innately corrupted. And if you're anything like me, it just takes a quick glance at my week for me to confirm some of those things. Those things came from me. So what do we do if we actually recognize this? If we say, yeah, I know I am responsible for these things. What is our hope then? How then does Jesus provide us intercession? Man, there is such good news. If your heart is feeling any of this, there is such good news. Hear again what the author of Hebrews says in verse 25. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely 
those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's able to save completely, not partially, not somewhat, not a little bit, but he's able to save entirely everyone who comes to God through him. There's no caveat to this verse. He's saying no matter who you are, no matter what kind of dirt is in your heart, God is able to save you completely through Jesus. Man, this helps me. I don't have to like stuff it away or try to hide it. I can bring it out knowing that my God's able to heal it completely. That's where freedom is found. Not in the burying, not in the hiding, not in the denying, but in knowing that I have a God who saves completely. And and how does he do this? (laughs) How does God save us completely? This is where we need to hear Jesus' intercession is based on his death. A lot of times when I was growing up and I'd hear words like intercession, I would think of what Brian Stevenson was doing. Like Jesus in a courtroom and he's advocating on my behalf and he's like making arguments for me. And what I kind of thought in my mind this sounded like was Jesus arguing to the father, something like, man, father, like Caleb, like he messed up again this week, but you know, like he helped a couple people. Like he, he did some good things, so let's let him off the hook this week. So that's like a decent argument. So Jesus is like interceding on my behalf. And then a couple days later, it's like, oh, Father, like, I know, like, Caleb messed up again, but, you know, like, he's got so much potential, right? If we just stick with him, maybe he'll get better, right? So let's just, like, give him another try. And then, like, another hour later, it's like, oh, like, I know, Father, Caleb just messed up again, but, like, he means well. Like, he's trying, so let's just stick with him. And eventually, Jesus, in his intercession, he's just like running out of arguments is what I kind of think. And he's just like, Caleb, like, you got to help me out up here. You know, like, I'm, I'm giving all my best stuff, but like, I'm running out of arguments for you, man. Like, you need to really shape up pretty soon because I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say next, you know? And so that's kind of in my mind maybe what Jesus is interceding for me sounded like. A lot of arguments based on me and how I was living. And he's doing his best to put it in good words. But Jesus' intercession is not at all verbal pleading on our behalf like this. It's based on his death. It's actually his blood that is speaking for us. It's his blood that is making the argument. How can this be? What do I, what do I mean? It says this later in Hebrews 12. This might be a strange, odd verse, but I just want us to see a key phrase in here. Here it says in Hebrews 12, You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that, hear this, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the writer of Hebrews is referring here is one of the first stories that happens in the Bible where two brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain gets really jealous of Abel, and one day in the field, he takes this rock, and he kills his brother Abel and spills his blood on the ground. And God speaks to Cain, and he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's crying out to me. It's like it's crying out for justice. It's crying out for this to be corrected. 
And so the author of Hebrew takes this idea and he switches it around and he says, Jesus' blood is also crying out. It's also speaking, but it's speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Where the blood of Abel was crying out for justice to be done, Jesus' blood is crying out that justice has already been done. Where Abel's blood was crying out for vengeance, Jesus' blood is crying out for forgiveness, saying that I've already paid this price, so forgive this child. And it's constantly interceding and speaking a better word. So Jesus is not up there somehow pleading verbally on our behalf. His death is the once and for all argument on our behalf. And nothing more need be said. So it's a this Jesus' blood is always speaking because of his death. Yes, Father, I see that Caleb has messed up yet once again. But I have completely paid for every wrongdoing of his. So it would be unjust to punish him in any way since it has already been dealt with in me. So, Father, we are free to forgive and pour out, yes, a just mercy on this child. This is the beauty of Jesus' intercession. It's based on his death, which is, again, the once and for all argument on our behalf. So as we end here, what's this mean for you and I, right? Diving into Hebrews, bringing up maybe a lot of strange ideas. What's this mean for you and I here? Critically, this means that Jesus' intercession ends our shame. I know that every single person in this room no doubt knows what shame feels like. Something in your life that you've, you're not proud of, that you wish you hadn't done, or that had been done to you. And it leaves you feeling really gross. And it, I know it's like this inner hiding that you do not want other people to know what's happened or is happening in your life because if they find out, they might think less of you. And the pain of shame is that it has such an accusatory voice. It's always telling us you're not good enough. If this brought out, people would hate you. This defines who you are. And it's always accusing us and speaking against us. And that shame we feel deeply. And a lot of people feel this all the more with thoughts of God. That's why they resist wanting to believe in God at all. Maybe that's you. Because I know that God, they can't hide from him. He sees everything. So I'd rather not even believe in him. But this is precisely, again, why such good news Jesus came. So that we would not have to hide ourselves but instead that we could draw near to God so that he could silence that voice of accusation so that our shame would be done away with. That I have no more reason for me to feel bad about myself because I've been saved completely. I have been made clean. And not because I'm innocent, not because I've done enough to prove myself, but because Jesus was crucified for me. And he's made me right with God. And that's the only thing that matters. That's the thing that now defines me. So all the accusing voices can shut up now because the one voice is speaking a better word for me. And I know who I am. 
I'm the son that's covered. I'm the son that's forgiven. I'm the one that belongs to the father. Not because I've earned it, but because it's been freely given to me. So you just walk different in that now. And you know everything has been dealt with. Not hidden, not buried. It's been dealt with. So the voice is silent. And you know this because you trust in Jesus. And his profound peace comes into those impossible to reach places in you. Those places of unrest that sleep cannot touch. The spirit of God can come into. And he can just breathe life and joy. All because you trust in Christ. So your heart can learn to say, Father, I give up trying to prove myself. I give up trying to earn your love. I give up trying to hide. Instead, I'm going to trust you and your death for me, that that makes me right with you. And then you sense his spirit come and say, this is true. You are forgiven. It's just like, man, what do I have to, what do I have to be afraid of now? I'm entirely new creation. This is what Jesus is freely offering you today. So I want to end wrapping up the story we started with. I left you not even knowing how things ended, but Brian Stevenson, he takes Johnny D's case all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. And there again is that same prosecuting attorney that kicked Brian Stevenson off his lawn. And the judge asks the attorney, now hearing again, the testimony that has been false and has been brought back. Will you dismiss the case? And finally, like after these years of injustice, the prosecuting attorney agrees to dismiss the case. And Johnny D is a free man. And his attorney has won the case. And it's the same thing for you in Christ. Not because you are innocent, but your advocate has won the case because he has taken the cost on himself. For, so for those who are in Christ, you are free indeed. So in that, would you pray with me? We'll wrap up here. Lord, thank you for the profound freedom that you offer by your death for us. And I know, God, a lot of this can feel so far away and ideas that are like 10,000 feet in the air. But God, shame is one of the closest things to us. And I know how it can just haunt our steps. And I love that you are eager for our freedom. You've come so that we could be free. And so God, right now, by your spirit, would you stir up in these students insight into what your gospel means for them, into what your death for them means. Not just a faraway story, but something that would transform them. And I ask this in your good name, Jesus. Amen.